Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, and I pray with all the hustle and bustle of the new year, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our hearts so that we can hear the small, still whisper of your spirit this morning. Whatever's going on in life, God, I pray that we would just set that aside and set our gaze on you for these next several moments. And I pray for comfort, encouragement, whatever is needed in this room. I pray that you would speak that over every single heart. We love you. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, would you grab a Bible, if you will? I want you to find the book of Job this morning. If you don't have a Bible, go to Version or grab one in the seat in front of you. The easiest way to find the book of Job, open your Bible to the middle. You're going to hit the book of Psalms, and you're going to go to the left one book, and Job is the book right before Psalms, all right? And we actually, we'll get to Psalms at the end of the message, but I want you to be there. I want you to take some notes this morning. So instead of tackling all of the theology of suffering this morning, we are going to tackle about 10% of the theology of suffering, but we're going to tackle what, in my opinion, is the most important 10%. And if you want to go deeper, I would encourage you to buy the book, all right, that Piper wrote, or just start jumping into the Word of God, all right? So I'm going to give you eight things this morning that God is sovereign over. And it's very important that we recognize the sovereignty of God because when we're caught up in suffering or trials and tribulations or heartache, it's really easy to get our gaze off of the sovereignty of God. And so I'm going to give you a long range or a long list of things that God is sovereign over. And they're not necessarily all going to connect the dots, but they're very important that we understand because all of these things lead to suffering in some way. The first thing that I want us to understand this morning is this, is that God is sovereign over Satan's authorized world view or world rule. I'm sorry. God is sovereign over over Satan's authorized world rule rule. And you go, wait a second, what do you mean Satan's rule? Well, we'll talk about that here in a second. When you look just in the New Testament at the names that the Bible uses for Satan, here's some things you're going to come across. John 12, 31 calls him the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 calls him the God of this world. Ephesians 2, 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. And Ephesians 6, 12 calls him the cosmic power over this present darkness. However it is that you know Satan to to be or what you believe, here's the thing that we need to do. We have got to take Satan very, very seriously. And this is one thing that we don't do in westernized culture because we think, oh, demonic possession and Satan and all that, that's good for Africa and for the tribes and for where spiritual warfare is rampant, where there's there's persecution of the church. Well, the reality is that spiritual warfare and, and, and Satan's demonic work is everywhere. And the Bible takes it very seriously, and we should take it very seriously. And it was attacking Jesus head on from the beginning. Now, we're going to go through a lot of verses this morning, and most of them are going to be up on the screen. So please don't try to 
Keep along with your Bible. This is not a sword drill time, all right? Because we got a lot to get through. Luke chapter 4. Here's what's happening. Jesus is about to launch into his ministry. He's just been baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit has descended upon him, and God has said with a verbal voice, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so what happens? Jesus is immediately whisked away into the wilderness where he's fasting for 40 days. And it says in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, it'll be up on the screen. It says, and the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And so we see the ruler of this world looking at the creator of the world, and says, if you worship, if you bow down, you can have everything that God has given me that is my right to own. And here's what's happening here. Understand that if the sovereign of the universe bows down to anyone, then what happens is that you lose your sovereignty, and the person that you're bowing down to now becomes the sovereign of the universe. The sovereign bows down to no one. But Satan's saying, no, you can... You can have it. You just have to worship me. And Jesus responds with all these scriptures. And you can get into that in Luke 4 if you'd like. Here's the reality. Satan does play havoc in the world. Always has. But he only does it at the permission of God. And he only does it within God's appointed limits. If you look at Daniel chapter 2, we're going to just look at one thing. Because I think it's easy to look at bad people that are appointed into roles of leadership. And we look at dictators. And we looked at, at people. I mean, you, you look at Hitler and you go, how in the world did that dude get there? And the annihilation of millions of Jews. And we look at, you know, a Stalin. And we look at Alexander the Great. And we look at all these people that were ruthless. And we go, what in the world is going on? And we go, man, Satan is just having a heyday in this world. Until you start reading throughout Bible, the scriptures, and you get to like Daniel 2, and you get to that later on this year, and you begin to see that, oh, God is the one that appoints all the leaders. In fact, you get to like Proverbs 21.1, and it says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. Kings, presidents, even tyrants are all in their God-appointed places. And they are all in the sway of God's sovereign will. And so it may seem that sometimes Satan has the upper hand or that evil has overtaken good. But in the end, I think it's important for us to remember the words of the psalmist in Psalm 33, 10, and 11. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. And he frustrates the plans of the people's. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. See, God is sovereign over all the nations. He's sovereign over the rulers. He's even sovereign over the satanic power that's behind them. None of them move outside of his sovereign plan. Why? Because God is sovereign over satanic, uh, Satan's authorized world rule. Here's the second thing. God is sovereign over Satan's angels. I bet a lot of you were thinking demons, all right? But they are, he is sovereign over Satan's angels. Now understand this, Satan literally has thousands of cohorts at his disposal, supernatural evil. 
Jesus has many words to describe Satan's little minions. Matthew 8, 31, Jesus calls them demons. In Luke 7, 21, Jesus calls them evil spirits. In Matthew 10, 1, Jesus calls them unclean spirits. And in Matthew 25, 41, he says, the devil and his angels. You see, there is a supernatural fight that is going on. You can see it in Daniel chapter 10. You'll get there in your reading plan where Michael, the good angel, is fighting against a demon or some sort of evil spirit that's over Persia. And there's a fight that breaks out. And when you see fighting between supernatural forces, it's very clear to see that the Bible leaves no doubt that who is going to be in charge when all these skirmishes break out, that God will always be triumphant because he's sovereign over those things. Now, I don't know if any of you like old hymns. I love old hymns. A lot of it is because of my dad. Uh, just loved hymns. And so when he was alive, I mean, I, I know a lot of hymns, all right? And one of my favorite hymns is one by, written by the great reformer Martin Luther, and it's called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he, let me just read one stanza of A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. I think those words speak perfectly that yes, this world is full of evil demonic forces that maybe we don't understand or maybe we don't give credit to, but the reality is that God is sovereign over all of those things. I think about when Jesus came into, uh, into interaction with two demon-possessed men, and this is what Jesus did. It's in Matthew 8. It's going to be up on the screen. It says this, And behold, they cried out. Actually, let me, let me, yeah, let me pick up in 28. It says, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? And now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herds of pigs. And Jesus said to them, Go. So they came out and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank to the sea and drowned in all the waters. The only way that happens is if the sovereign were to say, Go. Go. Because God is sovereign over Satan's angels. Number three, God is sovereign over Satan's hand in suffering. He is. I think one of the most descriptive scriptures out there for Satan is this. It's in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. It's going to be up on the screen. It says this, be sober-minded. So this is Peter talking to believers. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, the reason this is so captivating to me is that we see the sufferings of persecution for believers are like the jaws of a satanic lion that's sneaking up trying to consume and destroy the faith of those believers. But when you read all of 1 Peter, you understand that the lion is not the one that has the last say during these times. In fact, in 1 Peter 3.17, 
This is what Peter reminds the believers. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Which leads us to a very haunting and not a very friendly reminder that we don't really like, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. It's this, is that if God wills that believers suffer for doing good, then there is nothing you can do you're going to suffer. That's just how it works. But if he does not will that you suffer for doing good, then guess what? You won't. Why? Because he's sovereign over those things. Maybe Satan is rocking around like a lion looking to pounce and destroy our faith. But he does it on a leash. He does it on a leash. I think about Jesus' arrest in the garden. Jesus hung out for three years with everyone who wanted to kill him. And everyone wanted to arrest him. And you look throughout the Gospels, and he'll say, like, Jesus would say something, and they would get all mad, and they'd pick up stones to, to, to throw at him. And the Scriptures would say that he just vanished in the crowd. He just, he just go. He's gone. And then he would say, because it wasn't his time yet. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, after the Last Supper, Jesus is praying. And they come to him. And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, 52 and 53. It says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And then he says this, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. In other words, the jaws of the lion may have closed in on Jesus, but it did not close in no sooner or no later than what God had planned from the beginning. There was a specific time when that was going to happen. And so we see that God is sovereign over Satan's hand in suffering. Number four, we see that God is sovereign over Satan's life-taking power. Over his life-taking power. The Bible does not take lightly or minimize the power of Satan to kill people, all right? John 8, Jesus is talking to the preachers of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, and he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 2.10 tells us that Satan will kill faithful believers. So we sit there and we go, well, that really stinks. But then we talk about the sovereignty of God. And in the sovereignty of God, we have to remember verses like James 4.13 and 6, 16 which is, I preach this at all funerals. I always make sure that I, I fit this in. It's going to be up on the screen. It's so important that when you're talking to someone who's, who's on the precipice of death, and when you're talking to family members who have just walked through that, I always read this. It says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We always celebrate as believers that when we give our life to Jesus, that he, he breathes life into us and that, that we have life and life eternal. And that's true. But if God is the Lord of life, 
Doesn't he also need to be the Lord of death? Think about it. No one, according to James 4, no one is going to live or die outside of God's sovereign decree. No one has the ability to take your life until the Lord says, the time is now. And if the Lord wills it, we will live. And if the Lord doesn't, we will die. God is the one that makes the final call. It's not Satan. So God is actually the one who is sovereign over Satan's life, taking power, all right? And so when we see, when we experience that and we go, what is going on here? Listen, just know that God's, God's over that. He is sovereign. He is there. And he is walking through that. And it's not Satan that is like, oh, I'm just going to take anyone that I want. doesn't work that way. Number five, God is sovereign over Satan's hands in natural disasters. Hurricanes, tsunamis, tornadoes, earthquakes, blistering heat, deadly cold, drought, flood, famine, all realities that we face in the world today, right? And so let's go to Job, okay? I told you we were going to get to Job. Everyone, get to Job. Job chapter one, all right? This is where we're going to be. Job 1. Let's look at what happens for the first interaction in Job chapter 1. So let's pick up in verse 8. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered, and the Lord answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here's what happens. There is this character. Now we refer to him as Satan, and we have got Satan figured out as we know it's the devil with the pitchfork and, and all of that. But the Hebrew here is actually the word Satan, and Satan just simply means accuser. And so we actually don't know, is this who we picture as the devil himself, or is this just one of his dominions? We don't know necessarily, because it doesn't lend itself to know 100%, all right? So I'm just going to refer to him as the accuser from here on out, all right? So here's what happens. The accuser approaches God in Job, and he challenges God. and says, the only reason that Job's for you is because you won't let anything bad happen to him. And so what happens in verse 12? God gives the accuser permission to act. And here's what the result is when you're reading uh, uh, Job chapter uh, 1. Two atrocities happen, which leads to the death of a lot of people. Number one, fire rains down from heaven. I think, oh well, yeah, verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 16, kills all of his livestock and all of his servants except for one. And then it says a great wind comes in. I think it's probably a tornado. Maybe that's just my Oklahoma raising. But a tornado comes in, knocks down the house, kills all of his kids, all of their wives, all of the grandkids, kills them all. But we see, even when those things happen, none of those things could happen until God gave the accuser permission to move. Because it is not Satan who is the final ruler of the wind and the waves. It is God. 
Remember when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples? He's catching a little siesta in the, in the bottom of the boat, and the waves are coming, and they're crashing against him. And they're like, oh, we're going to die. This is the worst. So they wake Jesus up. And so in Mark 4, 39, it says, and so Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I got to tell you, I wish that worked with my kids. Right? They're fighting, and I'm like, peace. Be still, and there's a calm. It does not work in the Dean household. Perhaps I do not have that power yet. So um, is Satan real and terrible? Absolutely. Are his designs hateful? Absolutely. But he is not sovereign over natural disasters. Here's another thing. God is sovereign over Satan's sickness-causing power. Once again, if the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that Satan can kill people. We also see that the Bible is very vivid with the truth that Satan can cause disease. Acts 10, 38, they're giving a synopsis of what happened when Jesus was on earth. And it said that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with the power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Luke 13, 16, Jesus heals this woman who's caught, uh, uh, who, um, who's all hunched over and she's, she's just hurt. And I remember when we were in Mexico and the crew that was in Mexico with me uh, back in October, we were driving and there was this lady, she's probably in her 70s, and she was hunched over. I am not joking. She was all the way over like this, and she was walking like this across the street. No one helping her. No one offering a hand. In fact, she was invisible for the most part. And I remember we just looked at that, and I was like, whoa. That's kind of how I picture this lady who had this debilitating, like something was wrong with her, and Jesus heals her. And, of course, the preachers of the day had to have their say. So it says in Luke 13, 16, they go, well, hey, you can't heal her on church day. And they say, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Jesus acknowledges that Satan causes disease and sickness. He acknowledges this. But the thing that we need to wrap our minds around is this. See, there were two purposes really behind uh, Christ coming and doing miracles and healing people. One of them was to prove the validity of who he was. So people would say, he's doing things that no one else can do. That's incredible. He's calming seas and he's healing deaf people and he's making crippled people get up and take their bed. He's doing incredible things. He's got to be something special. But there's a second reason that these miracles were happening is because it served as a sign for those that were witnessing it, but also for us in 2022, to, it served as a sign to show showed that the kingdom of God was breaking through and that final victory over all diseases was coming. And so here's the thing. Is it good and right to pray for healing? Absolutely. You should pray for healing all the time if people are sick. Absolutely. But here's the thing that we need to understand. Did you know that when Christ went to the cross, he just didn't go to pay for your sins so that you could get to heaven someday, but God actually purchased healing in the death of his son on the cross. I don't know if you know that or not. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds or with his wounds, we are healed. That word for healed does not speak of, of spiritual healing. It's the word used for a physician who's helping someone who's under, undergone some kind of physical ailment. 
through the stripes of Christ on the cross, healing, physical healing was purchased. Now here's the thing. You go, but wait a second. Why does he not answer my prayer requests? And why does he not take all the cancer away? Or why does he not remove this or do this or do that? If he's already done that, then why doesn't he? Well, here's the reason. It's because though it's been purchased, God has not promised that we we will get the entire inheritance of this healing on this side of eternity. He doesn't promise us that. God decides how much we get, if any. And so in Matthew 7, Jesus says, pray to the Father, ask him for the things that you need. But that doesn't mean that you're going to get exactly what you ask for. And that's why we have to hold on the verses like Romans 8.28. That says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So maybe you get a little bit of healing. Maybe you get a whole lot of healing. Or maybe you get no healing. We trust that the Lord knows what's best. And then he's doing it for our good. And so let's go back to Job. When the accuser goes before God the second time, look what he asked for. Uh, let's look in verse 4. Job 2, 4. Then the Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And one of the grossest pictures here. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. So we see that when the accuser shows up, he has to get permission from God to strike Job's body. And Job and God says, all right, I'm going to give you another leash. And here's the thing. You can only go this far. Is, he full, if, is, is Satan real and full of hate? Absolutely. Can he cause sickness and disease? Absolutely. But he is not sovereign over those things. He's not. We keep reading. In, uh, 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 number seven, I'm sorry. We see that God is sovereign over Satan's temptations to sin. I don't think it's a stretch to say that most, or mo- yeah, most of our suffering comes from one of two things. Number one, it comes from the sin of others against us, or it comes from our own sins. Those are the two primary things that lead to our suffering. And so like when Jesus was uh, in, the, in the wilderness after being baptized, when his temptation came, the scripture identifies in Matthew 4, 3, it says, and the tempter came to him and he said, and so we do know that he's the tempter. In fact, we know that the origin of all misery on the earth is this, Satan came to tempt Eve and she took the bait, and when she took the bait, with it came the curse. And since then, Satan has been tempting people to do what will hurt themselves and others. But yet, in the midst of all of this, Satan is not sovereign in his tempting work. I want to I just lay out two of the more, more popular, if you will, temptation stories in Scripture. The first one is Judas Iscariot, right? After the Lord's Supper, it says that Satan literally entered into Judas in Luke chapter 22. All right, We see possession happen. And we go, whoa, what, what's going on there? But then you get to Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 1, 
And it reads like this. 1.16 says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested him. So it wasn't like Satan jumped into Judas and God's like, whoa, snap, I did not see that one coming. Like, whoa, Jesus, you better be on your toes, man. That's crazy. It didn't work that way. In fact, Acts 2.23 says this, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Even the literal possession of Judas could not happen outside of the sovereignty of God. It's how it was laid out to happen. Another one, Peter, right? The leader of the disciples, foot in mouth, right? Um, classic many of us, right? We, we, we speak and, and it's like, we're just like, oh, we're so powerful. And then, you know, things happen and we like are meek and weak. So Jesus tells all his disciples, he's like, listen, everyone's going to run away. Everyone's going to desert me. And Peter inserts foot in the mouth and he says, not me. I will never leave you. So this is what Jesus tells Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That sounds very familiar. Sounds like Job. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we see that Satan was at work behind the scenes, but he had to go to the sovereign. He had to go to God to get permission to even test uh, Simon's faith. And this is what Satan, and so Jesus tells, says, Peter, guess what? Satan's seeking to destroy your faith. And basically my father has given him a leash to do what he can, but here's what I've done. I've prayed for you. That's, that's the great thing about Jesus, that he's interceding for us at all times up in heaven for his children. He's always interceding for us. And so he intercedes, he goes, listen, it's gonna come. But don't worry, you'll overcome. And then I want you to strengthen the other disciples. See, Satan is not sovereign in the temptations of when Judas fell or when Peter walked away three times or even in our own temptations. Satan is not sovereign in those moments. God is. The last thing and the most damaging one is this. God is sovereign over Satan's mind-blinding power. So we have to understand that Satan's eternity has already been sealed. And I know I'm talking a lot about Satan today, but we've really got to understand that suffering and Satan, they go like hand in hand. So Satan's eternity has already been sealed. Hell was created as an everlasting place of torment for him and all of his angels that fell with him. So Satan's aim is not to get out of hell. It's simply to take as many people there with him as he can. And so to do that, what he does is he works to blind people to the gospel of Jesus. Now let me just take a time out and say the gospel of Jesus is this. God so loved the world. He sent his son to die for you. Jesus died on the cross, paying your debt for sins. He rose from the grave three days later, proving that the debt had been paid and that he truly was the son of God. And that if you have faith, you believe that he's the son of God, came to live, die for you and rose from the grave, you will be saved. That's the gospel in a nutshell, okay? That's what has the power to save. That's what has the power for the flashlight to go on and for you to see. And so here's what happens, is that no one is going to go to hell who believes in Jesus and has, has accepted him as his Savior and Lord. No one. It's only those who fail to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord who are going to suffer the wrath of God. So, with that knowledge, 
the deadliest weapon in the arsenal of Satan is this, spiritually blinding people. It's the greatest weapon he has. 2 Corinthians 4.4 puts it this way. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see the ruler. Eh, ruler is a, is a loose term. He is the ruler, but he's, he's underneath the sovereignty of God. And what's he doing? He's blinding the minds of all those who are not believers. And if he succeeds... The suffering for those people will be endless. But yet when you continue to read, remember I tell people all the time, never take scripture out of its context. You've got to keep reading on. Two verses later, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, it says this, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's what's going on here. Paul is comparing what God did in the beginning of creation to what happens in the beginning of your faith journey. So in the beginning of creation, God says, let there be light, and there was light, and from that, creation started, okay? Well, your faith journey starts when God says, let there be light, and it shines into your your darkened human heart. And so our beginning of our faith journey is the exact same as the beginning of what time as it, as, as, as it was with light, shining in to the darkness. Ephesians 2.5 says that when people are dead in their sin, the great mercy of God makes us alive in Jesus. So when people are blind and spiritually dead and when they see nothing compelling about Jesus, Romans 3 tells us all the time, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seek after God. No one thinks they're bad enough to actually go to hell. That's the reality. Eight billion people in the world and no one in in their right mind thinks to themselves, well, I deserve to go there. No one. Spiritually blindness. When you see nothing compelling, God speaks. And his words, which created life in the beginning, create spiritual sight inside of you. And all of a sudden, you see a need for the gospel. You see a need for a savior. Satan is a terrible enemy of the gospel, but he is not sovereign in any of it. And he will not have the last say when it comes to spiritually blindness. In the end, I love it, Philippians 2, when Christ comes back, it says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Satan will be revealed for who he is. The problem is that at that point, it's kind of, you can't pass go and collect $200 at that point, right? It's not monopoly. It's, that's it. Stopwatch is done. So I realize that this is not like, let's go, you know, jump up and down and let's just, let, let's just worship all that's gone on today, right? Like this isn't one of those type messages. But yet it can be because I want to talk very briefly. Like what do we do with this? Okay, I've just given you eight things that God is sovereign over when it comes to suffering. He's sovereign over natural disasters and he's sovereign over death and he's sovereign over temptation and he's sovereign over sickness and all of these things. But what do I do with this? Like, Joey, I just really came because I saw you were talking about suffering today, and you said we were going to talk about how do I respond to suffering, and that's really why I'm here. So you just literally spent 40 minutes talking about something that I just, I just need to get to the end. Cool. Let's do it. How do you respond? How do you respond in suffering? Let's go back to Job. Job chapter 1. Let's look in verse 20. 
After Job was told that his kids were dead, his servants were dead, his, his sheep were dead, everything was dead. It says, then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What is our response in the midst of difficulties of suffering? It's the same response as Job. It's to worship God. It's to worship God. What Job did in this moment is he worshiped and acknowledged God's sovereignty. Now, did Job know 100% of everything that was going on and why it was happening? No. I mean, we have the whole 42 chapters, so we know the story. But no, there's no way that he knew why it was happening. In fact, when you look through the ebbs and flow of Job, if you're reading through it with us, you can see that he has some high moments and he has some very low moments, okay? No, but who does know why we go through suffering? Who does know why we go through trials? Who does know why bad things happen in the moments when they do? But here's the reality. In the face of uncertainty, when the advice of others was given to Job, and it wasn't even very good advice, or when his family was dying and he didn't know why, this is what Job's response was. I will worship the sovereignty of God over all things. Job 2, verse 10 Job's wife, after he is scraping the, the, scraping the sores in order to try to relieve himself from the pain of that, says in verse 9, he says, hey, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? And this is what Job says to her. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. We see that even in those moments when other people, his own wife, his best friend, who's saying, just die already. Job says, no, who am I to question the sovereignty of God? Who am I to question what's going on in all of on my life right now? I don't know what's happening, but I will not question what's happening here. See, there's a reality that's really, that, that I really feel like during the six-year journey of South Lakes, the Lord has been kind of walking me through this because I've had more stuff happen to me in six years than probably my previous uh, 34 years combined. Honestly, I've had a lot of stuff happen. And so what we have to recognize is this, is that there is little comfort when we focus on the freedom of Satan to steal, kill, and destroy. There's, there's little comfort if we focus on our situation and go, oh my gosh, the world is falling down and everything's going to, to pot and it's just not good at all. And we focus on all the bad things. It's when we focus on all the things that's happening, we start throwing a pity party for ourselves and we start taking our eyes off the sovereignty of God and we start focusing on us. And here's what happens in, in your reading today, in Job chapter 23, I posted this in, in our reading plan, if you're following, I said that Job says this, if, and, and Landon read it, he goes, hey, God, if you will just give me the ability to have counsel with you. I will plead my case. And when I plead my case, I know you're going to side with me because I'm a good person. I don't do bad things. I don't deserve these. And I know. So we go from Job worshiping in chapter one and two to him saying, I don't know what's going on here, but you got to listen to me. And that's what happens when we begin to take our eyes off of the sovereignty of God. We begin to say, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm too good of a person for this to happen. This can't be right. And we lose focus of the fact that God's always been in charge. 
And so there is more security and relief and hope and support, and there's more glorious truth when we look straight past Satan and whatever act it is that we're currently going through and instead look to God and his sovereignty and his mercy. You will always find more security and relief and hope and support in all those things when you look straight to God, when you look past what you're going through. And when Job lost sight of God, what did God do? Well, he stepped in in Job chapter 38. I don't want to spoil it, but you'll get there here later this week. And God said, listen, little man, why don't you sit there, shut up, and let me tell you what's up. And by the end of 42, you know what Job did? He goes, wow, I didn't focus on your sovereignty. So he reset his, his thought process and his looking, and he looked straight past his present circumstances, and he looked to the sovereignty of God. He repented, and he worshiped God. It was only when he took his eyes off of the prize that God was always in charge that his misery really started compounding upon himself because he started feeling sorry for himself. Now listen, what I just said here is so much easier to preach than when you're going through it to say, okay, how am I going to look past what I'm going through? Listen, I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm just saying that if you want to find solace in the midst of whatever you're going through, look past the circumstances and look straight to the sovereign. That's what I'm saying. You look past it. Reset your gaze. You know, if anyone were to come up to you and say, hey, uh, so Job's really long. I don't really want to read it. It's kind of boring, kind of a bummer. Can you just give me a brief one-sentence synopsis of what the book of Job's about? And you go, um, suffering? Do you know we're actually told what the purpose of Job is? Now, you don't get it until the very end of the Bible. You get it in the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 11 says this, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, In other words, who have stayed strong, who have kept their eyes on the prize. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you know what the purpose of the book of Job is? It's to show that God is full of compassion and mercy. That's it. That's it. It's to show the compassion and mercy of God. And you go, how can that be? Well, because the thing that Job didn't know is the fact that God said, Satan, you can go this far and go no farther. And the fact that God was there to sustain him, even when Job thought he was, when he was broken and he lost everything and his wife was against him and his friends, man, they were just nimrod. They were stupid, right? They were not giving good advice. And, everyone, and, and finally, he, he starts self-doubting himself. You know who was there to sustain him the whole time? God. God was full of mercy and grace. And it took until Job 38 when God speaks and says, let me show you who I am, that Job realized, wow, you really are full of mercy and grace. You really did sustain me during this time. See, I don't know what you're going through. I I don't. But I do know this. I know that God is sovereign. And I know that he's walking with you every step of the way. I know that. Now, listen, you can be mad at him all day long. He's a big God. He can handle that. And you can question his tactics all day long, and that's great. I'll tell you what. You take a piece of dirt, and you make man, and then you, you, you can tell God what to do, all right? It just you, you can be mad and question all this stuff. You can. But it doesn't change the fact that he's merciful and full of grace and compassion. And that's the story of Job. 
In fact, that's the story. If you're a believer in this room, if you've placed your faith, if you've gone from spiritual blindness to walking in the light, not because you're special, but because the gospel was just shown in and, and, and said, you, you need me. You need Jesus. Right? Like, you, you've got a God on your side who's over all things. And he's walking and he's holding and he's sustaining you. And I realize that might not give you words of comfort in the moment if you're going through something really tough right now, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. It doesn't. Maybe what we need to do is to stop focusing on this is what's happening and to look past and go, but where's the sovereign God? Let's focus in on that because that's what's going to bring us hope and joy. It's going to bring us comfort in the midst of whatever we're walking through. And that's what Job, it took him 42 chapters, but he got there. It, it got there. I'm 40 years in. I'm sure maybe by, I mean, if I live to 80, I don't know if I want to live on this world to 80, but let's say I do, right? I, I, I still won't learn that lesson. I'm still going to be a, a work in progress. But aren't you glad that God's full of mercy and grace and compassionate for us? Even when we don't feel it. Even when the world is literally falling down around us. Aren't you glad? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me, please? Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, and I, I confess that I do not know what's going on in everyone's life this morning. I don't. I don't know the ups and the downs. I, I, I don't know those things, but you do. And so, Father, I pray for those that might be walking through some heartache right now, walking through some suffering, walking through some unpleasantness, God, I pray this morning would be words of comfort as we are reminded that, God, you are sovereign over everything. That there is nothing that happens outside of your permission. There's nothing that happens outside of you saying you can go this far and no farther. And Father, I confess that a lot of times we, we walk away with more questions than not because we just don't understand why things work the way that they do. But then we have to lean into Romans 8.28 and just trust that if we love you, that you're working all things out for our good. That you're using our heartache and our pain to shape and to mold us. And so, Father, we say thank you for being full of mercy and grace and compassion. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.